What happened to our home, Cornelius? I had hoped you'd be a little older before we had this lesson. You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children. And still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders. And under our beds. And in our closets. And together we'll realize, whoa, that's pretty that's dark. That's pretty dark. <laughs> and then... From 800k last night onward, I'm just like, please don't stop. We're like, it could get a million. <laughs> That's like what I do when I'm anticipating being ghosted, and then I send the next text, and then it's like, God. any minute, <laughs> I'm just gonna realize she hasn't responded. Yeah, pretty much the same situation. That's kind of how this goes, basically. Except we get ghosted by the whole internet at once. <laughs> the whole world, <laughs> all of existence ghosts us. It's not that bad, but. When you have like a million eyes on something, it feels like you've been ghosted by the whole internet when that yeah. stops. So while I was making my coffee, which I'm drinking out of my, that's pretty dark mug. Look at you. <laughs> while I was making my coffee, I was reading an article I found online. I was trying to educate myself. Okay. <laughs> and it's called Woodlands for Whales, hmm. the Welsh government's strategy for woodlands and trees. It was just an interesting read. I was trying to figure out some of the background for this episode. Yeah. It was kind of an important thing because they were leaving the European Union, which I don't know anything about, but sounds like a really big deal. <laughs> but what I found most interesting is that the concept of sustainable forest management in Wales yeah. was developed in the 1980s and then was further defined in 1993, hey. which was the same year this film came out. Uh, I don't know how that pertains to this episode today, and <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with gassing poor forest creatures, well, but I'm hoping you can tell me if any of this is connected at um, all. <laughs> yes and no, I think. It is interesting <laughs> that that comes from Wales. Yeah. However, I don't know. There's a lot of nuance to this whole story. I can imagine. I did not know about that particular thing, but it is interesting to me as well that it came out. It happened in 1993. I just wondered if there was any connection. Yes and no, I guess, is what I would say to that. Direct connection? No. <laughs> if it was in the ether at the time? Yeah. Maybe. Well, I'm just glad I could bring something to this episode and kick, <laughs> kick this off with the only research I've done. Oh, God. Um, my name's Christian. My name is Kaylin. This is That's Pretty Dark. It sure is. Welcome to Forest Talk. We're both wearing our merch today, so uh, hopefully that'll bring us all good luck mm -hmm. on this harrowing journey oh, we're about to yeah. go on. At least we're dressed well, you know? Yeah. Could be worse always. How can you survive the gassing of your forest and the destruction of your home? Family. You wear that's pretty dark merch. We aren't making any legal claims as to how it might protect you from chlorine gas. Climate change got you down? <laughs> anyway, take it away. Take it okay. away okay. from me. This is one of those films with mice that so many of us saw at the time. And despite many forgetting the title, the plot obviously had staying power in our overly anxious generation. Mm. And I'm not talking about The Secret of Nim, though we have gotten like a dozen requests to do that one in like the last week. <laughs> oh yeah, just the last week alone. We, soon. We will do it soon. We promise. Very soon. But today, we're talking about a different mouse movie. And not The Great Mouse Detective. And also, not The Great not Mouse Detective. And not Five Goes West. And not Five Goes West. <laughs> How many are there? A lot. There are a lot of mice movies. Tonight's movie, the Tom and Jerry movie. <laughs> the Google searches, as I was researching, held queries such as, 
90s movie with forest animals? What cartoon has a mouse named Abigail? And naturally, what is the 90s movie with animals and toxic gas? The toxic gas. Right up front, we can see this is going to be pretty dark. Uh, I'll say here, I hadn't yet seen this movie, another one I hadn't seen. And uh, I was not ready for it. I really do enjoy the dynamic when I, I know them very well and watched them when I was entirely too young to be doing so. And then you didn't watch them at all because that dynamic. <laughs> I had no idea. Of, of showing it to you the first time. Um, as my jaw is just on the floor. On the floor. For yeah. like an hour and a half. It's very satisfying to me. It's very validating to me. I hope you feel the same way, listener. If you were traumatized by these movies, uh-huh. hearing Christian's dismay at them as an adult hopefully is doing something for your psyche. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have kids or anything. I'm just showing it to my cats. Oh, yeah. But I mean, if you can set aside the whole, like, this is just a kid's movie, like, whole aspect and look at the themes that, you know, we're going to talk all about. It is startling. Startling is a word, yes. Alarming. Mm-hmm. Slightly unnerving. I would say so. And I'm not just talking about the nerve gas or whatever well, the poison gas is. We'll, we'll get there. We'll t- I'll tell you all about I'm it. I'm so Don't curious worry. about the gas. That's why I did I my have, little research. Hey, hey, I'm going to I'm going to teach you today. I'm going to tell you everything you wanted to know. Dude. Once Upon a Forest was released theatrically on June 18th, 1993, just about a year after Fern Gully made eco-activism cool for cartoons. Nice. uh, With Laserdisc and VHS release following in September of the same year. It tells the story of characters created by a Welsh children's author and TV graphic designer, Ray Lambert, in their book, A Furling Story. A Furling Story. It wasn't clear that she was a woman, so I'm just going to use the they, them pronoun because not positive. Okay, yeah. Are you ready for a summary of this film? A Welsh they. Yes, I am ready. A Welsh they. Summarize this film. (laughs) This time I'm going to paraphrase from TV Tropes first. Three forest denizens, a headstrong mouse named Abigail, a carefree hedgehog named Russell, and a timid mole named Edgar go on an expedition to cure their badger friend Michelle, who becomes sick from chemical fumes which leak into the forest due to human carelessness. So sad. I feel like that's putting it kind of mildly, though, because if you had asked baby Kaylin, it would have sounded something more like, despite Mouse Abigail's bravery, a soaring score, and the whole thing being laced with a somewhat redemptive attempt at a green message, this movie and its fear-laden glimpse into a geographically ambiguous forest prove that every single second separated from your parents not only could, but likely will lead to someone's certain death, <laughs> especially if the separation occurs due to a field trip. Baby Kaylin was so verbose and so eloquent and she wow, was. Articulate. She was fairly precocious. People yeah, were you afraid were quite of me. Precocious. Yeah, yeah. You said before you were like a talking doll, like a little Yeah, I tiny... was very small because I was born premature and yeah. I would genuinely terrify my parents' friends because <laughs> I could say so many words and I was just such a small person. You would scare and That's me. still pretty true. I still terrify my parents' friends um with my words. And my stature. And your I actions presume. and your beliefs and your whole- And my actions Your whole everything person. Else. Everything about your personality is just- It's always been scary from the get-go. Just, yeah. I know that this sounds bad and we're definitely in for it, but mm. as usual, let's journey together through the production story first and give it at least a chance yep. to explain itself, shall we? It's like putting like your seatbelt on, but like you know you're going to get in a car wreck. Kind of like that, yeah. But like the seatbelt does protect you, so you should, but I don't want to because I'm going to get in a car wreck. The inevitability of the tragedy is pretty tough. It's nightmare logic. Mm-hmm. Nightmare yeah. logic. I would say that's accurate. Yes. Four years before the film's release in 1989, the aforementioned Ray Lambert, then the head of graphic design at a Welsh television network, ITV Simru, 
Wales. <laughs> it's hard to pronounce because it's spelled C-Y-M-R-U, but I think I got there. And it's never pronounced the way you think it is because mm-hmm. it's Welsh. So Ray devised a Furling story titled As a Pitch for Hanna-Barbera, mm. along with her partner, Mike Young, who is actually still producing children's content, including 65 episodes of Courage the Big Red Dog and Clifford's... Wow, I said Courage the Big Yeah, I was very confused. <laughs> Courage the Little Pink Dog <laughs> and Clifford. Including including 65 episodes of Clifford the Big Red Dog and Clifford's really big movie. Nice. I have to assume that there was some relation to him here because then screenwriters Mark Young and Kelly Ward then spun the story as a made-for-TV movie called The Endangered, which was the screenplay, more or less, that was used for the final film. Called The Endangered. Wow. Mark has quite a few relevant credits, having written and produced on animated projects from the late 80s on, such as The Jetsons, DuckTales, The Addams Family series, The Halloween Tree, oh, wow. The Pebble and the Penguin, and All Dogs Go to Heaven too. Wow, so many crossovers already. So many. But does the name Kelly Ward ring a bell to you at all? Well, I was going to say, I know a Kelly Ward personally. It's probably not that Kelly Ward. Not the same one, but we've worked together on movies. Oh. Yeah. The name Kelly Ward rang a bell for me, but I was shocked to remember why. Hmm. In one of my very favorite discoveries from this research, I found out that he's the guy who played Putsy, the blonde kid in Greece. <laughs> wow. I'm, wa- I'm watching your mind explode. Wow. I was just like, okay, let me remember... All these layers of things. That's pretty crazy. I know. You didn't expect me to say that. No, I didn't expect uh, Grease to come up <laughs> at all. Well, I, I mean, you know, greasy things maybe from gas. I mean, gaseous greasy. Just, just wait. That's insane. Kelly seems to have teamed up with Mark quite a bit, but his own credits include the screenplay for All Dogs Go to Heaven 2 huh. and many other kids shows. And interestingly, a ton of dialogue and voice direction credits for Five's Adventures in the West TV series, uh, voice direction for both Once Upon a Forest and All Dogs 2. The 90s Pink Panther, Babes in Toyland, 101 Dalmatians of the series, The Spooktacular Adventures of Casper, and a ton of work in the 2000s in several iterations of Scooby-Doo and 40 episodes of Mickey Mouse Funhouse. Did a bunch of cool stuff. But now, whenever you rewatch Grease, because I'm sure you all rewatch it as often as I do. Oh yeah, every weekend. You can look at Putsy and thank him for your childhood separation anxiety. Thanks, you Putsy. Yeah. Pretty wild. That's cool. That shocked me. The things you learn on That's Pretty Dark. The dots you connect. You know me. The quilts we weave. Whoa, the tangled quilts. The colorful quilts we weave. I would say it's pretty colorful to go from Greece to Once Upon a Forest to All Dogs Go to Heaven too. I know. While the screenplay is usually one of the bigger hurdles for films on our show to climb, uh, with production and writing sometimes overlapping in anxiety-inducing ways for those of us who are deadline-challenged, it feels like it was kind of the driving force for this one that held it together, because it was almost fully intact from the start. Although I couldn't work out exactly how Lambert's pitch made it all the way to Hanna-Barbera, that connection also meant that a name very familiar to this show came aboard as producer, David Krishner. Yeah. Who had been appointed chairman of Hanna-Barbera Productions that same year in 1989. Nice, yeah. We've mentioned him in reference to everything from teaming with Spielberg on An American Tale mm-hmm. to the Child's Play franchise, Five Will Goes West, and we spoke about him pretty extensively in our Page Master and Hocus Pocus episodes already. Right. So he's right. sort of a central figure in all of this darkness. Mm-hmm. It feels kind of to me like not only did he conceive of some pretty dark ideas himself, but he, if he heard a dark children's concept, like children's media concept, yeah. he was like, hey, I want that. I want in on that. <laughs> I get it. He had an eye for it, for sure. I would too. So with David in the producer role, Hanna-Barbera's feature production unit was formed to work on both Once Upon a Forest and the Jetsons movie from 1990. 
and the executive producers bought in fully to Once Upon a Forest as well. William Hanna, co-founder and chairman of Hanna-Barbera, is quoted as saying, Once is the finest feature production we have ever done. Wow. When I stood up and presented it to the studio, my eyes teared up. It is very, very heartwarming, <laughs> he said. Sure. Um, he said that to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in May of 1993 when they were gearing up to release it. And I'm really sorry, Bill, but is it possible that you were crying for a different reason? <laughs> I was going to say, it's heartwarming except for all the death. <laughs> yeah, it's heartwarming except for everything terrible <laughs> that happens in how, it. how horrible it is Mercy. and how bad I felt at the end. Mine and his definitions of heartwarming are different. I can confirm that to be a thing. Yeah, it's complicated. Charles Grosvenor, uh, whose name I apologize if I ever mispronounce, but I did look it up and that seems to be the way to pronounce it. So I'm going to go with it. Grosvenor. Grosvenor was brought on to direct the project. Grosvenor. Uh, he'd gotten his start with Hanna-Barbera after moving from his home in New Jersey to L.A. in 1978 in his late 20s with a dream to work in animation like nice. so many have. Yeah. But his first job was actually working as a model designer on the Buford Files for Hanna-Barbera, and he soon hmm. joined the layout department and quickly advanced to crew chief and ultimately to head of layout. Dang. Which, that means he had a hand in pretty much every Hanna-Barbera show that was produced in those years. Yeah. Um, including Richie Rich and the Smurfs. All right. That's pretty and cool. And Once Upon a Forest was actually his first feature, but he went on to direct The Land Before Time in the direct-to-video films that they were doing in 1997. Right, right, right. At the time they were doing the fifth installment of those films and he continued working with the franchise throughout the mildly successful television series in the early 2000s nice okay something else that is sort of unique about this film is how much animation was actually outsourced and to how many studios they outsourced it hmm. uh, krishner told the dallas morning news that disney has great animators and the studio has them locked up for years and years yep. so we got the best worldwide animators available from denmark asia argentina spain and canada Dang. aka what he's saying is we had to work on a budget <laughs> <laughs> a bulk of the animation was in the hands of wang film productions in taiwan who also handled a lot of projects for disney and warner brothers as well as nickelodeon and stretch films aka Courage. I was going to say, we haven't we covered Wang before? I think we've talked about them because of Courage. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. All these worlds, all these people. Other studios, including the Lapis Azul Animation and Matias Marcos Animation of Spain, hmm. the Jamie Diaz Studio of Argentina, Denmark's A-Film, uh, Phoenix Animation Studios in Toronto, Canada, and the Hollywood Cartoon Company. Mark Swanson Productions did computer animation for the Yellow Dragons hmm. and the Flapper Wingama thing. <laughs> the Flapper so Wingama thing. Mechanical. They specialized in that stuff. I like that. On the computer. Other notable crew members include art director Carol Holman Grosvenor, wife of Charles, who had worked on many Hanna Barbera series and as an assistant layout artist on The Black Cauldron. Hey. Judy Chang, Wang Films production supervisor, who now works in the industry as a costumer, tailor, and seamstress on stuff like The Walking Dead and The Hunger Games franchise. Damn. Foley artist Greg Barbonell, an Emmy-winning sound editor with 10 wins and nearly 40 nominations, and so many more because the crew list for this one was like endless because they worked with so many different studios. Oh, yeah, and so, they all had their own crews and employees. Hundreds of crew. Wow. Wikipedia said that because of time constraints and budget limitations, nearly 10 minutes were cut from the final film before its release. 
Wow. The director, Charles Grosvenor, said the sequence that was cut involved a swan voiced by Glenn Close, who was tangled up in fishing wire, and our three heroes free her, and she in turn offers her thanks by flying them to the goal of their quest, the meadow. It's like the eagles in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, here, we'll just take you where you need to go. If only. He said that the picture was getting too long and starting to feel a bit ponderous and segmented, um, and so they made that slight adjustment and the kids get themselves to Oakdale instead. It's about the kids or, you know, the animals, mm -hmm. the furling. The scene was actually fully animated and the footage was cut into the film as they were building it as a pencil test, but it never went to full color before they ended up cutting it. Oh, okay. So they were they were moving this one down the field. They were like, this, we like it. Um, They had Glenn Close yeah. and ended up cutting it. It's interesting because it is only like an hour and 10. Yeah, it's really short. Like... They didn't cut it necessarily for time, but I understand cutting it for, for pacing. pacing. Yeah, for kids, yeah. for sure. Attention spans are short at that age. Unless you show them, you know, trauma after trauma in front of their <laughs> well, face, then they pay attention. I guess so. During this period of refining, the studio temporarily changed the working title of The Endangered to a less ominous sounding Beyond the Yellow Dragons for fear the audience would find the former title too sensitive for a children's film except that there's the whole rest of the film <laughs> to contend with. <laughs> well, so getting I'm not them, sure why that was the concern. Getting them We don't want to give door. it to them up front. We don't want to tell them that it's, you know, scary in the title. Right. No, if it's if it's scary, they won't buy the tickets and go to the theater. We got to get butts and seats. Mm -hmm. Then we can just undo know. them when they're already in the theater. Yeah, mm -hmm. at that point, they've already bought the ticket. They got to ride the ride. <laughs> ride the yellow dragon. It was distributed by 20th Century Fox, which is now owned by Disney. Yeah. And I believe we talked about this in some of your early research, but we also know that Turner Broadcasting acquired Hanna-Barbera in 1991. Yes. And yes. this same unit that they had created for feature production uh, is what eventually branched off to produce The Page Master and Cats Don't Dance under Turner's umbrella as Turner Feature Animation instead. Once Upon a Forest and the Jetsons turned out to be the only features produced directly by this new production unit under Kirshner's leadership. Uh, though they did license the live-action film adaptations of The Flintstones and Scooby-Doo before Whoa. being fully dissolved in 2001. And where would we be if we didn't have those movies? <laughs> and we can't talk about the production without talking about the music. Gotta talk about it. I was always <laughs> surprised. I told you this when I was watching it. If a movie, if a musical doesn't open with a musical number... It's pretty jarring to just for someone to just break out into song all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. It's it I feels never out was of bothered place. by it, but I also feel like I I love musicals and I um am a big show tunes kind of person, so it never really puts me off too much because not that I expect it always, but it's never a negative for me, really. Yeah. So it doesn't really bother me. It just feels out of place to me. I don't know. That's, I mean, fair, because these ones, they definitely felt like afterthoughts if you look at the film as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. But I would love to talk with you first about the score of the film. Let's hear it. In an interview with uh, Charles Grosvenor on James Horner's website, uh, Charles said that he met James sometime in 1991. He said, when it came time to select a composer to write the score for Once Upon a Forest, David asked me who I would prefer, James Horner or Randy Newman. Mm. And he was a fan of Newman's work, uh, especially his score for The Natural in 1984, but he felt like he was more drawn to James's symphonic approach. Yeah. Plus, he had scored animated features already at the time because, as we know, Randy Newman's great Toy Story work was still a few years away at the time right right so he told david that he would prefer james and he agreed and away they went i cannot imagine i just think it's so funny to imagine it coming down to those two yeah and it was not a randy newman 
movie. Film, no, you know, it was much more of a James Horner kind of. Absolutely, movie. I cannot. And imagine I say that, this but movie. I say that knowing it as a James Horner scored film for my entire life. So yeah, well, I don't have that, but I'm looking yeah, at Randy Newman, and I'm over here like that doesn't doesn't you work. Know, it just doesn't fit. The styles are too different. The styles are very very different. I agree. The tone of the whole film would be different. This isn't that kind of movie. The composer really sets that tone, as we know. We also know that Kirshner and James Horner had first joined forces on An American Tale in 1986, and they then went on to collaborate on Five Goes West in 1991. They also collaborated on The Page Master in 1994, and they almost collaborated on Hocus Pocus. That would have been different, too. Outside of just his work with Krishner, James also scored the original Land Before Time, We're Back, Casper, Jumanji, and Balto, just in case you forgot. Grosvenor said, I'm very, very fond of James's score. His cue when it's revealed that the Furlings have arrived at their goal uh, still gives me chills today. The orchestral build to the crescendo of the reveal is breathtaking. And the flying cue when our heroes are navigating the flapper wing of a thing is just soaringly beautiful. That cue was used later in a documentary film about a man in a mini flying machine helping some birds to their proper migratory route. Wow. And it remained just a marvelous bit of music. <laughs> <laughs> I like that he knew about that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That's nice. They reused that musical cue. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, three songs were written for this film. And I believe James wrote these as well, including Please Wake Up, uh, He's Gone, He's Back, yeah. and the closing credits track, Once Upon a Time with Me. The songs were performed by the London Symphony Orchestra with contributions from Ben Vereen and Michael Crawford. And the soundtrack, released by Fox Records, has been out of print since its publisher went out of business in the mid-90s, which explains why you don't often see it streaming or for sale, because I've looked for it. Yeah, wow. I was definitely really curious to hear about your opinions of the songs in this one, because I knew that mm. one in particular would hit you pretty hard. Yeah. Um, and I honestly probably should have warned you about it. A little bit. Thinking This back. week in particular. Yeah, it would have been nice to have a heads up. But you know who didn't get a heads up either? All the kids who grew up watching this. So yep, it's I only figured right. it was fair enough to let you experience it's only it the fair. same way that we all did. All is fair in love and podcasting. So, <laughs> so now let's do a quick cast roundup. Yeehaw! <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> let's cast. round up the cast. All right, um, animals. <laughs> this isn't a complete list, but I'm going to hit the highlights again for sake of time. It's just kind of how we do. Yes. So firstly, Michael Crawford voices Cornelius, a badger who is Michelle's uncle and the teacher of the furlings. Don't take another step. Furlings, prepare to be amazed. Uh, Michael Crawford also acts as the film's narrator, somewhat. And the director said in that interview I mentioned, we originally cast Peter O'Toole to voice Cornelius. Wow. But then literally a few days before I was to leave for the London recordings, the Iraq-Kuwait War of 1990 and 91 broke out. Heathrow was ringed with tanks and the recording session with O'Toole was called off. Wow. He said that then because of all of this, scheduling problems with Peter O'Toole caused them to abandon him for the project. Mm. And uh, Michael Crawford, who was then riding high as the Phantom in The Phantom of the Opera. You know, that's so funny. Cornelius instead. I was going to say parts of that first song that he sings Remind reminded me so <laughs> much of Phantom of the Opera. It was like if Josh Groban sang Phantom of the Opera songs. Yeah. Is what it sounded like. Yep. That's wild. That's why. Huh. That's why. Because that was what mode he was in at the time. Huh. And honestly, I think, I feel like they added the song specifically when they figured out it was going to be Michael Crawford. In oh, the role. that makes sense. Give him a, a, a heart chilling number. Yeah. Heart chilling is one way to put it. Mm -hmm. Heartbreaking. This cast shift, though, was apparently at the suggestion of Liz Kirshner, David's wife. Because she saw him in Phantom of the Opera and she thought he would be good for the role. Yeah, he's super smoking. 
Let's bring him on. <laughs> Michael Crawford grew up acting through the 50s and 60s in England, both in film and on stage. And this isn't even his first time playing a character named Cornelius. Uh, that actually occurred in 1969's Hello, Dolly. <laughs> nice. Uh, how old was he when he was doing this role in the 90s? He was right about 50. Oh, okay. So okay, so he's playing this super old I know, uh, guy I know. with like a, like a cane and he's hobbling around and he can't control these kids. And I was like, yeah. you played Phantom and then you played a decrepit old mm -hmm. badger? Sure. It, in a voice role, you can get away with uh, shifting your age a little no, bit. Yeah. But yeah, he definitely sure. was playing much older than he was at the time. Just ask me, my, my, my vocal range is f anywhere from five to <laughs> 79. That's very specific. Well, it's on my but actors, my you know, resume. It's on. Yeah, but your age ranges. Special skills. I can sound like a five-year-old. <laughs> I was used on that that show with a guy who who brings uh, the pedophiles to the houses and he traps them on TV. Chris Hansen. Yeah, I was I was really big back in the eighties when that show was on nineties. Mm. I was actually gotcha. five. <laughs> they actually used me when I was five. So Just, I haven't updated my resume in a while. Yeah, I so. probably haven't updated mine since I was five either. Why would you? Ellen Blaine plays Abigail, a sweet and brave wood mouse, mm. and the leader of the furlings, what they call the, the kids. Don't be silly, Russell. Uh, you just sink us. Before scoring this role, Ellen appeared in Encino Man and Hang with Mr. Cooper, and she followed it up with a Blossom appearance and even made it to ER in 1999, though it appears she stopped acting after around 2002. Huh, okay. Benji Gregory voices Edgar, a young mole and the cautious planner of the group. Mama, Cornelius has a big surprise planned for today and you're making me late. Uh, Benji came from a family of actors himself and had a few roles throughout the 80s on things like Punky Brewster, The Twilight Zone, wow. and last but literally most, in 101 episodes of ALF as Brian Tanner. No way, that's cool. Yeah. Wonder if uh, David knows him. I wondered the same thing. I'm sure they've crossed paths. There might be some other folks David knows on this list, honestly. Paige Gosney voices Russell, who is kind of the doer, the action taker of the Furlings. Right. They won't give me a chance for breakfast. Paige appeared on a short-lived sitcom we've mentioned before, The Torkelsons, and it looks like Benji and Paige worked together on the Back to the Future series in 1992. Wow. So that's kind of fun. The series, huh? Here's one, though, that's going to get you. Oh, I know this one. I'm Listener, ready. Christian. I'm ready. I know it. I know this one. <laughs> None other than Elizabeth Moss voices Michelle. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I know that name. Nice. Guess what? Guess what? You're never going to guess, betcha. Uncle Cornelius said I could go with you on your ramble today, but since you're late, he's probably forgotten all about it. I'll never, ever get to see what the big surprise is. Uh, Michelle is the three-year-old badger who becomes sick after inhaling the poison gas we keep talking about. Yes. And you might know her from a little thing like The Handmaid's Tale. Maybe. Or Mad Men. Maybe. Or Girl Interrupted. Could or be. Or The West Wing. <laughs> yeah. I, this was clearly like a very early role in her career. Yeah. And I couldn't, I was very surprised by this one as well. I was like, whoa, wait a second. It's Elizabeth Moss. That's fun. And I mean, Michelle's voice is very familiar to me. So it's a wonder I didn't figure it out before now. But again, she was very, very young. Very young. I was impressed by how, you know, precocious the kids seemed how like intelligent mm -hmm. their voices were for these for mm -hmm. these characters because something like we talk about with hey arnold a lot yeah they really had this right. depth to their voices because like yeah oftentimes it is adults voicing younger but to get kids to actually voice younger characters it's hard to find that like perfect either they're voice. gonna play it really real um mm -hmm. and then it's gonna work or they're gonna overthink it and it's gonna be kind of one note you know, yeah. or in the words of DJ McHale, they'll be too Disney. Yeah. Or they'll be too Disney. <laughs> That's just too much charisma. Right. You dial Laying it down. Too thick. We don't need any dancing children. No dancing children. <laughs> 
And speaking of charisma, <laughs> Ben Vereen plays Phineas, the preacher bird. One of our crossed over to a better place. Wow. Oh my God. So charismatic. <laughs> His Broadway credits include <laughs> Wicked, Fosse, uh, I'm Not Rappaport, Hair, Jesus Christ, Superstar, Pippin, wow. for which you won a Tony, Grind, Jelly's Last Jam, and A Christmas Carol. Hey! And he's also got a storied on-screen career. Exciting to me, though was that Ben has a recurring role on How I Met Your Mother playing Wayne Brady's father. No way. <laughs> That's Ben Marine. That's cool. Will Estes voices Willie, the field mouse, who becomes smitten by Abigail. Yeah. Gosh, I hope I didn't hurt you when you threw me down. He appeared on 90s classics like Boy Meets World and The Secret of Alex Mack and did 60 oh, episodes of early 2000s drama American Dreams as J.J. Pryor. I've been looking for everywhere to, f- to stream that, by the way. I don't even know what that is. It was like a drama in the early 2000s and i saw like one episode or two episodes when it was hmm. coming on i haven't been able to find it since but i really want to rewatch it because it feels like it'd be up my alley that's cool right. yeah and then since 2010 he's done over 275 episodes of blue bloods okay all right yeah so yeah. he's still acting so many crossovers man every time i hear alex mack i just feel i know like i'm a kid again that's one that i definitely want to get to i want to rewatch alex God, mack. i just want to see somebody turn to goop yep that's what I need. I just want to watch that. I just want to watch these mystery shows, these crazy, spooky, weird mm-hmm. little shows. So weird, yes. And sip on a Capri Sun mm. and pretend like I can also turn into the gelatin. I always wanted to do that as well. Quicksilver gelatin thing. Those commercials would air like in between Rocket Power and they'd always be doing cool things like skating oh, yeah. or surfing, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Good times. Uh-huh. Now the truth comes out. They're just here to steal our food. Charlie Adler plays Wags, a wicked squirrel who bullies the furlings, and you might even already know his name. Mm. This dude is actually a super acclaimed dialogue director and voice actor. He lent his voice to characters in Aladdin, Tiny Toon Adventures, Goof Troop, Tom and Jerry Kids, Mighty Ducks, uh, as Ed and Bev in Rocco's Modern Life, huh. Ickes in Ah, Real Monsters. <laughs> ah! It's been a while since we did that. Ah! <laughs> Cow and Chicken in Cow and Chicken. Both. And Rocket Power, Dave the Barbarian, and as Mr. Whiskers in Brandy and Mr. Whiskers. That's wild. Honestly, just so much more. It's hard to keep up. Yeah, no. This is is someone to remember, apparently. He also voice directed all of the Klasky Chupo franchise series and feature films, including Rugrats, The Wild Thornberries, uh, Rocket Power, Preschool Days, All Grown Up. And he voice directed Tim Curry for the role of Nigel. And he voice directed Eartha Kitt on The Emperor's New Groove. Can you can you hear my bewilderment? I can. I'm just I can so hear it. like I can see it on your so face. So impressed. Too. Wow. They don't have that luxury. But yeah, absolutely no. wild. This dude's career. Insane. It's insane. So when you hear Wags's voice, and even though his character is really annoying, just try to focus on his voice because <laughs> you can see then how you can recognize it from all of the other things that you watched at the time. Because he was in everything. Yeah. Or he had his hand in everything. I would like to note that. Kaylin says looking at my face is a luxury, so <laughs> don't you all wish you could look yeah, upon sometimes, uh, my Sometimes I visage. know that people do want the video content. You can't. We we record naked, so you can't. <laughs> no, today we're both wearing our That's Pretty Dark tank tops. That's true. They already know this. You're right. They already know that we wear our merch now. But I'm all top, no bottom. Well, that I wouldn't know. Last but not least... Ricky Deshaun Collins voiced Bosworth, the young bird who is saved from a puddle. Bosworth. Did his voice sound familiar to you, Christian? Bosworth. No, I don't remember his voice. He was really young at the time, so I get it. But 
He also played Vince on Recess okay. and Tucker on Danny Phantom. No way. Yes. And how did I know you were going to say Recess f- for any- anyone? I was like, <laughs> she's going to talk about Recess today. I don't know why. Weird. You had it in your- I knew it was going to come That's up. That's a premonition if I've ever heard one. I've been known to premonition. Yeah. Premon- well, Vince <laughs> and Recess. And uh, Ricky had a dozen other appearances, but his first was as a Cub Scout on Home Improvement. Nice. And he was also in an episode of Parker Lewis Can't Lose. How about that? So lots of connections to uh, Mr. David Stephen Cohen in this episode, too, which is really fun. Mm -hmm. And to me, I know this is a lot of information that I'm throwing at you, listener, but it always paints the films we cover in a different light when I can picture the cast as they were in life and not just as these animated characters that I've known for all of mine. It also helps to um, dilute a little bit of the trauma. I agree. When you kind of go, oh, absolutely, I these agree. aren't real characters. Yes. When you can see behind the curtain. As an honorable cast mention, I also wanted to say that members of the South Central Los Angeles First Baptist Church were chosen to voice the chorus accompanying Phineas. And while filming the live action references of their performances, the crew was apparently thrilled beyond expectations because the chorus started flapping their arms and moving their tambourines. (laughs) (laughs) David Kirshner said. I love that They so got much. into character, and that makes me so happy just for so many reasons. I think it that's beautiful. It felt pretty authentic. Yeah. The whole thing felt genuine. I would agree with that. Yeah, we'll get there. We're, we're going to talk we're about gonna that get there. very soon. As I like to do, I've broken up the pretty darkness for us to discuss in three parts. <laughs> All right. The first part I've titled Eco-Existentialism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The second part is titled Parental Panic. Okay, all right. And the third segment I struggled with a little bit, but ultimately titled, in parentheses, not too far from home, (laughs) All right. colon, religion and racism. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Okay, I'm down. I dig it. So those are my three sections that we're going to walk through for this film. Mm. Gonna take a journey. So, as most people remember best, this film is a love letter to nature and most of the creatures that inhabit it. Mm-hmm. And much like Ferngully, the film focuses on what happens when a malicious at worst, careless at best human oh, yes. forgets or doesn't care how their actions will impact others. Hmm. hmm. Seems like a lesson we could all take a look at. Not happening now. Maybe even, maybe even more so now than when we were children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might be right about that. So the film begins with our three heroes headed off to see their wise teacher, Cornelius, for the day's lessons. Uh, We get little vignettes with each of them to learn a bit about their personalities, you know, the morning before school. Right. Uh, Abigail, ever fearless, is with her dad, who is also a former student of Cornelius's. Edgar is with his mom, which we will get to momentarily, so hold your horses for that one. And Russell is having breakfast with his huge hedgehog family. They're not huge hedgehogs, they're just... Correct. They're normal-sized hedgehogs, (laughs) but there are a lot of them. (laughs) <laughs> and once again, the food on their table looked so good. So good. I've never wanted to eat just raw mushrooms from the forest so bad. <laughs> I mean, I basically do. <laughs> I basically eat the same stuff mm. every day. Nuts, fruits, granola, all that stuff. And I can promise you it does not taste as good as it looked in this film. No. Um, but it looked delicious, I gotta say. Man, cartoon food for the win. But when Russell complains about not getting his portion, his mom reasons, Well, you just have to be quicker, Roland. I'm not rolling, mother. I'm Russell. Russell. Thanks, mom. Thanks <laughs> yeah, for caring no. about my well-being. Like just don't eat. It's just like don't yeah, eat. the if runt you can't loses get there, you like don't eat. 
That's yeah, it's literally like the runt loses, but I don't think Russell is the runt of anything. No. Unfortunately, because this is the start of a running gag that we see with Russell around food and how preoccupied he is with it. Yeah. And I'd like to say that we've moved away from commenting on characters eating habits as a society, but no. alas, we have not. It's always a thing. They do use it for a pun later though when Abigail says Russell can rustle up some food. And I was like, "Ah, yes, I get it." So smart. When the Furlings arrive at Cornelius's, he and his niece, Baby Badger Michelle, are excited to show them his prototype for a flying machine he calls the Flapper Wingham thing. Oh, the Flapper Wingham thing. Never a better named experiment, right? <laughs> I just want to I want to see all the conversations about the Flapper Wingham thing where they had to use they had to say it seriously in like conversation. Do you in the imagine business like meetings about the, the film or, they, or right? they get like into like creative disputes over like how something would work and like no, I the think flapper the flapper wingma thing, thing should look, look like, this. like this <laughs> and it looks like this no the flapper wingma thing yeah pretty great I wonder if they had a shorthand like version where they were just I'm like, sure they just said the flapper the wing ding <laughs> the flap ding wing ding the flap doodle the hash slinging flapper dingling crash bringing okay <laughs> so of course presenting this prototype to the kids chaos ensues meanwhile cornelius acts like he didn't know what was going to happen when he unleashed that thing in a room full of school children i know the mishaps which makes me question how wise he is really right from the get-go i have a lot of thoughts about cornelius <laughs> i'm sure we're gonna talk a whole lot about mr uh, cornelius our friend rip him a new one <laughs> not really he's sweet I feel like I repeated his name 12,000 times. Cornelius. 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 The scene ends with a book on gravity falling and squashing the prototype. <laughs> which <laughs> like actually went good. way over my head as a kid because I was primarily watching this when I still hadn't yet learned to read. Yeah. Uh, and as we were saying earlier, I was a very precocious kid. I learned to read really early. <laughs> so that tells that. you everything you need to know about how early I actually watched this movie. I was probably Michelle's yeah. age and they say Michelle is three. Yeah. So. A little bit of uh, humor for the adults. You mm -hmm. um, when they walk in, they're late and they, I forget which, whichever one of them says, good, he's busy. He's busy. Closed captioning said, God, he's messy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa. Are you sure they didn't say that? No. Yeah. No. You, you look back, the context says, Good, he's busy he's because busy. they show he up late. That we're he late. won't notice that we're late. Okay, yes, we can I know sneak exactly in. what you're talking about now. Yeah. God, he's messy. But it said, God, he's messy. <laughs> I was going to say. Because it's showing the, the pan of the room and all the books are everywhere. Yeah. So someone, someone just guessed. Right. I was going to say that I really liked Cornelius' house because it looked a lot to me like Pinocchio. It did. Like it just reminded me of that cottage. Because he has all of his contraptions know. everywhere. Mm -hmm. All the like models hanging from the ceiling. All of his creations are surrounding him, much like Geppetto's. I've always wanted my future home to be like that. Like I don't know if I'll Your be. house is like that. Well, it is. I'm not an inventor, but I do have like printed copies of my stories and things everywhere. Absolutely. All over. They're right where I can find them. Yeah. I think that counts. Look at me. <laughs> Fulfilling so many dreams in my prime. You're right where you wanted to be. Right. It's what you got to look where at yourself and say when you're editing this episode. <laughs> this is not where I want to be. <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best. As they bound out of the house for a surprise lesson, Michelle starts down a path that Cornelius quickly warns her away from. And we mm. see why. There are traps set yeah. for their capture or extermination. Not sure. That area is off limits. Why, Uncle Cornelius? That's not our lesson for today. And I think Come it's an along, attempt not to scare the kids, but it really f scared me. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. It it's almost way feels too like, ominous already as a kid. This is 
a huge threat that pretty much ends in their demise. And he's just exactly. like, yeah, no, this could no, end kids. your existence. That's not where we're going to learn today. It's like, yeah. I, yeah, I guess he is trying to protect them from the harshness of reality because he does yeah. tell them later, I wish you were older before I had to tell you this stuff. He's protecting them from even being aware of it. He's too old to be rounding up these kids when they act out. Yeah, he has a hard time keeping control. It's too dangerous. He is taking them on literal, very dangerous adventures, as we come to learn. Life-threatening in some cases, yeah. And he can't keep up with them. Yeah. So he needs somebody else there to help. I think that's supposed to add to the urgency of all of it, because it, you know, the film several times highlights, and we'll we'll talk about it, it highlights his, like, yeah. panic at their exuberance. Yeah. Because yeah. he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't know everything you need to know. Yeah, it's it's to, all part of the commentary. You know, be a little bit more measured. Listen to me. So it's yeah. As a kid, when you're watching it, you can feel Cornelius's like fear and panic, and I think mm-hmm. that amplifies it for the young viewer, knowing that this wise old creature is so afraid of so many things. Yeah, it also kind of leads to like kids. When an adult tells you not to do something, it's for a good reason, as you'll see depicted here in this movie. I think you're hitting the nail on the head in that that is almost the cautionary message for kids watching is see yeah. why you should listen to the grown-ups kind of thing right right right. I mean, a little house in the prairie kind of thing <laughs> they begin their lessons about how willow bark is an anti-inflammatory yeah um and for all intents and purposes i think we can say this one is confirmed i was pretty impressed <laughs> by the realism in this movie according to versusarthritis.com the bark of some species of salix trees has been used for treating inflammatory and arthritis-related conditions since ancient times. Yeah, uh, its active ingredient, salicin, or salicin, uh, reduces the production of pain-inducing chemicals in your nerves. Mm. And limited evidence suggests that willow bark may have a moderate effect in treating pain caused by osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, like they talk about with the yeah. rheumatism. Rheumatism. However, in the single study testing it against uh, NSAID, drugs Mm -hmm. um it wasn't as effective for pain relief oh i see but you know whatever big pharma (laughs) might even have fewer side effects though i mean honestly more pure um and and again regardless of what it is if you need medicine there should be no shame whatsoever in taking it whether it's an inset or some willow bark supplements if uh, that's okay with your doctor but i thought it was cool that they were being realistic about some of these herbal remedies i did too oddly refreshing for kids fantasy i feel like this film also started like my personal fascination with herbal medicine. Although I thought <laughs> I thought I was mixing up cures and potions and salves in the backyard when I was little. Me too. Um, but it was just mud and grass, you know, with the occasional weed thrown in for good measure. Yeah, things that smelled funny or like interesting. Mm-hmm. You're like, hmm, this will work. Yeah, exactly. This will be good in this concoction. Yeah. yeah, we all made mud pies, right? But I really thought that I was going to heal people with it. But obviously, <laughs> sometimes my imagination got the best of me. Hey, well. And now I just leave the sort of thing to the professionals like our friend Andy uh, at Every Light Wellness. She does literal herbal I was gonna say. remedies, supplements, like tinctures, everything that you can imagine. And it's incredible. And I like wish I had all of that knowledge because I think it's, me it's just so too. cool to know how and how all of these herbs relate to one another, to our planet, to our bodies. It's just so cool. Agreed. Yeah. But while we're on the subject of herbal medicine, uh, very soon two herbs will become central to the film's plot, eyebright and lungwort. Mm. And even though we haven't gotten there yet in the plot, I thought I could give a little breakdown on them while we're already hanging out in this headspace. Let's do it. Today is plant day. We'll learn how everything we need grows right here in Dapplewood. Wikipedia told me that eyebright or euphrasia officinalis is an 
annual plant that grows wild in meadows, grassy areas, heaths, and pastures of Britain, northern and western Asia, North America, and Europe. It was known to classical herbalists, but then was not referred to until mentioned again in 1305. Hmm. Uh, Nicholas Culpepper assigned it to the zodiac sign of Leo, which, happy Leo season, fellow Leos, claiming that it strengthened the brain. Hmm. Uh, It was also used to treat bad memory and vertigo. Sounds like we both need us. I could use this. Eyebrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Elizabethan era, the plant was used in ales and in a book from 1616 that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the name of. <laughs> it was said that one should drink every morning a small draught of Eyebright wine. Yeah, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll drink some Eyebright mead. I know. Herbalists use Eyebright as a poultice with or without concurrent administration of a tea for the redness, swelling, and visual disturbances caused Mm. by um, different eye infections like conjunctivitis. Yeah. Uh, The herb is also used for eye strain and to reduce inflammation caused by colds, coughs, sinus infections, sore throats, and hay fever. Uh, parts used include the leaf, the stem, and small pieces of the flowers. And typical preparations include warm compresses or as tea, like I said. Wow. Eyebright preparations are also available as an extract or a capsule. So still being used pretty widely, which is kind of cool. That sounds pretty neat. Pulmonaria, lungwort, <laughs> <laughs> is a genus of flowering plants mostly native to Europe and Western Asia. Hmm. And in the times of sympathetic magic, which we've talked a little magic. bit about with our Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes, right. um, but sympathetic magic is a type of magic basically based on imitation or correspondence. Like if a thing looks like something else, think like mm-hmm. it's not voodoo, but like a voodoo doll, for example. Right. No, that's yeah, big example. When something looks like something else. They tried to use sympathetic magic in a lot of like nautical navigation mm-hmm. before they really knew how to navigate using stars and such. Right. Before, the, But it actually it was a precursor to longitude, yeah. which changed everything. I mean, I, mean, I think sympathetic magic, it just sounds cool. I like the whole idea of it's it. It's interesting. But it is very rudimentary at the end of the day. Like it's super, Oh, it's totally fake. This looks like this, therefore this. Yeah. And that's exactly the case with uh, pulmonaria officinalis because they were thought to symbolize diseased ulcerated lungs, wow. uh, the spotted oval leaves of the plant. And so they mm. were used to treat pulmonary infections. And uh, I know that the names of these herbs sort of betray what they were used for, which was probably done on purpose, especially for a children's movie, be choosing these specifically. But, yeah. Hey. I mean, I thought they were fake because of the names. Right. So I, I looked them up too, because I was like, there's no way these are yeah. real. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that's too convenient. And then they were. I was like, this no, is- they specifically chose what? from that era of sympathetic yeah. magic it's when really you cool. name something either after what it looked like or what it did, I guess. Did you notice so. all the foxgloves? Yeah. For anybody mm-hmm. who doesn't know, those were the the pinkish bell shaped bell shaped flowers. Uh, yeah. Flowers. And we've covered this before in our Jake and the Leprechaun episode from Are You oh, Free yes, the Dark? That's because right. I was like, I know I've talked about this with you. He's got like foxgloves and bluebells and it's all this like old fairy magic because you know we're talking about like leprechauns and banshees and all kinds of irish stuff celtic stuff Mm -hmm. and this also plays into like welsh folklore as well all Mm -hmm. the uk folklore which i mean goes back to the fact that uh ray lambert who originated the story was welsh right so i feel like it was a nice visual nod which is one of the really one of the only uk or welsh aspects of the movie aside from right i think cornelius was british a little bit or something like that sort of because michael crawford was but yeah it's another fern gully kind of like australian but not australian at all it's very american trust me like i said even baby kaylin was like where are we (laughs) but i thought it was a nice visual nod to that kind of history and folklore being 
uh, technically a Welsh forest. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because the foxglove is poisonous. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the folklore existed to keep children from eating them, right? They're beautiful. Kids put things in their mouths. But it's interesting that this natural, beautiful growing plant in this forest is poisonous, Mm -hmm. but it's a natural, beautiful thing. It's a weird, odd parallel to the poisonous gas, Mm -hmm. this foreign element that's then introduced to the environment. That isn't natural. Created by humans, brought into our beautiful existence. We'll we'll get there too. (laughs) Okay. But it's still, I just thought it was an interesting parallel is kind of the whole point I'm trying to make. Yeah, for sure. And and I think... um, as you're saying it, I'd like to think that maybe Ray in her original story described the forest and talked about the foxglove specifically, and Could that's be. why they chose it. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love for that to be the case. I can't say for certain, but it stands to reason that could be true. I'm going to see if I can find a copy online. Well, there you go. Like I do. While they're on their field trip, the Furlings also get a little lesson in rowing and teamwork, learning things that will surely <laughs> be important down the road. For sure. And uh, speaking of roads, as soon as the posse finds the asphalt highway, as a kid, I was immediately spooked. As a grown-up, I was unsettled as well, Mm -hmm. because the entire tone of what's happening shifts really abruptly. Burlings, get away from there! Get out of the road this instant! And I think it's also, again, Cornelius's fear of the thing that causes that shift in tone. His panic. The smart, well-versed, worldly grown-up is visibly terrified of something. Mm -hmm. Um, And not to mention, we see Russell nearly gets run over by a speeding driver. Russell, you are one lucky hedgehog. Almost became roadkill. And I feel like it was handled a bit better. Well, a lot better than Hocus Pocus when they thought it was a black flowing river. You know, it's like... mm. It's clear that Cornelius knows about it, but Mm. doesn't necessarily know what it is. Just avoids it. Dangerous to me. Exactly. But it's hard and it smells funny. Mm -hmm. It's a weird kind of ground. And then a driver that is potentially drunk, a lot of the descriptions say that the driver is drunk and I could buy into that. Yeah, the bottle, yeah. uh, Tosses a glass bottle out their window, which shatters across the highway. And like you said to me when you were watching it, Christian, the glass looked sharp. It was complete with a glinting sound effect. (laughs) Did not like the look of that sharp glass. Uh, TV Tropes calls this audible sharpness. (laughs) (laughs) When something goes, you know. (laughs) It was such a cool callback, too, when you see it from the other car, the truck's uh, point of view. When Mm -hmm. you all, you can't even see the glass. All you see is the the glimmer, the shine. You know what it is. Reflecting Mm -hmm. on. Which is how it is when you're driving. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't really see it. That's why you don't litter, kids. But as we see, humans are both the start and the end of this whole fiasco. In the crown jewel of environmental and existential terror from my childhood, Mm. this one careless act causes a tanker truck carrying poison gas, chlorine gas, according to the fandom wiki, to pop a tire and crash violently. Uh, The driver emerges unhurt, thankfully, but realizing that the crash has resulted in a gas leak, he runs for help. Yeah. It's so funny that you mentioned the gas earlier. (laughs) So random of me. I literally have it written in my notes that if you're like me, you probably had a lot of questions about the gas when watching as a child or even questions of plausibility when you were rewatching this as an adult. Yeah, I was I was curious. And I'm here to answer those questions. Um, and many of these answers did become a lot clearer after learning that the culprit was, in fact, chlorine gas. Chlorine gas, all right. Upon rewatching, I wondered to myself, hmm, would an airborne toxin kill the plants too and that quickly? <laughs> <laughs> In essence, yes. <laughs> wow. According to bugwoodcloud.org, 
Chlorine is both a useful element and a dangerous element. Uh, chlorine is an essential element in trees. It's found in thousands of natural and man-made compounds and materials. Chlorine is essential for both human thought and activating pesticides. Huh. Living things use chlorine and generate thousands of different organic compounds. Animal immune systems incorporate chlorine into their natural materials to fight infections. Chlorine-containing organic materials are released every day from decaying plant materials. Hmm. Organochlorines are also generated when plant materials are burned. Earth's volcanoes emit chlorine materials. Some minerals even contain chlorine. We are surrounded by a chlorine recycling geology and ecology, which is essential to our lives. Wow. But this concentrated chlorine gas is very different. <laughs> right. So it wasn't just a commentary on like the 80s and 90s. Everybody was putting swimming pools in their <laughs> nope. yards. Mm -mm. Oh, got it. I don't even think it said, I could be wrong, but I don't think it said the words chlorine gas. No, anywhere. it just said, it said poison it just gas. Had the danger poison. Yeah. Yeah. I think because if kids would know anything, they would know poison, but they wouldn't know chlorine. Like this makes, this makes total sense. I agree with the fandom wiki. I think that they are correct in saying it's chlorine gas. It makes sense. Tree reactions to chlorine gas and associated injuries are as varied as the circumstances and exposure, mm. but generally in a tree, foliage has the most sensitive tissue with no inherent buffering or shield like the soil-surrounded roots. And the photosynthetic system in the tree leaf is most sensitive. Hmm. Uh, this website said the first few minutes of exposure cause enough damage to shut down the leaf. Foliage wilts upon exposure. Oh. And the site went on to describe how basically the decay eats the plant from the inside out because it disrupts mm. all of the processes that are needed for the plant's food production and growth um, and all of those things because yeah, wow. there's like a block basically mm. and it can't happen anymore. And this damage just spreads through the plant. Seems very similar to pea infestans, which is the blight that caused the Irish potato famine. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known that that had to do with the Irish potato famine. It's a completely different thing, it's, but it's very similar. It, that sounds like a bacteria. Yeah, it's a it's a fungus. So very, very different. Yeah, this is not... Not a chemical compound, but... Sure. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> I have to bring it up. You, know? you have to mention the Irish potato famine at any given I have to ruin everybody's good time. Of course. If I haven't already done it with the effects of chlorine gas on a tree. I know this is really dry, like, information, but I was fascinated because... No, it's the cause of this whole it, movie. Exactly. It talks about exactly what happens in the animation that yeah. I thought was impossible, but it's it's not. It seemed like this very fictional thing you'd see in like Captain Planet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Something that's like, this is not even a real right. thing, but that's they're fighting, I a, they're I fighting like, shadows yeah, okay, right now. This probably isn't real. No, it's, uh, it is real. it's definitely possible. Wow. Uh, the site said that susceptibility to pests and injury increase as defensive capabilities of the plant decline and structural units are compromised. Mm. I just imagine this like decay, right? Yeah, the wilting Ooh, of all that. And I don't like yeah. it at all. I also wondered to myself about this chlorine gas, whether the gas would rise or fall since it seems to sink to these low-lying areas in the film. And spread, yeah. And I learned that because chlorine gas is heavier than air, mm. it will in fact sink into low-lying areas and increase the risk of exposure to there, the forest floor. making the dens of various small woodland animals, such as badgers, especially vulnerable. Mm. Jeez. Which leads directly into our next segment. <laughs> Man. And I hope you're ready for it. I'm not. We have to do it anyway. Yeah, we have to. This is it. We're here talking about this it. This is what we're here for. This is what we're gathered here today to do. We're gathered here today. So, he's gone. as the yellow-green gas seeps throughout Dapplewood, we hear some of the most tragic, 
terrifying music imaginable. Mm. This imagery is also, side note, why I went through a phase when I was a kid where I was petrified of carbon monoxide gas. Yeah. Because that gas is odorless, and if this could kill, even when it was so obvious, how much worse must it be to die from carbon monoxide poisoning? And you should be afraid of carbon monoxide. Everybody needs a sensor in their own home. Yeah, exactly. I, as a kid, when I learned what carbon monoxide was, all I could think about for days was Mm -hmm. this movie. Because it's totally different gas, but like still. Very similar. Really shook me up. Yeah. Really shook me up. Still does anytime I think of it. It's shaky bakey. And as this gas, the chlorine gas is invading Dapplewood, Cornelia mm. says, Something's wrong. The woods are far too still. Which is never a good vibe. Dude, the tone shift mm-hmm. was unnerving. It really was. It's sickening. Yeah. Like pit in my stomach. Impending doom. They hurry back to Dapplewood where they're greeted by a very grim scene as the gas continues to sink down into the burrows and hideaways. Michelle's <laughs> Michelle's yelling for her mom and dad makes me hurt, like gives me actual physical pain. And it's not any easier to watch as a grown-up. No. So Michelle rushes inside despite their warnings to look for her parents. Yeah. In this moment, things look dire, but luckily Abigail puts on her bravest face yet and is unable to wait for Cornelius to form another plan mm-hmm. because she descends into the den as he calls after her to cover her mouth. So Abigail holds her breath, and this leads to possibly the pretty darkest thing our little show has yet encountered. It feels like it's high up there. Michelle's dead parents drooped over at their kitchen table. I could not believe they were actually dead and showed it. Thank you. You're right. One of the darkest things we've Say it with me now, class. That's That's pretty pretty dark. Dark. (laughs) I can't... I, I, I... This is why I've been talking to you about this movie for years. That's why you were like, I want to talk about Once Upon a Forest. I look it up. It's like cute little woodland creatures. They go on a little adventure. They save the day. Right. And I was like, what could possibly be dark about this movie? Now you know. Oh, it's because like a little three-year-old girl has to find her parents dead in their home. And then pass out herself. And then almost die herself. Yeah. And then be very, very close to death. This one moment. I'm upset about it. I, I am too. I still am. Um, it, this scarred me as a child in ways that I didn't even begin to untangle until I was well into my adulthood. Hmm. And though it was in keeping with the deaths of many animated parents, uh, we don't typically see them dead. No. Uh, save Mufasa. It's it's usually, yeah, you're right. It's usually um, just implied or yeah. assumed. Presumed. Discussed in exposition. If I had seen this as a kid, it would have messed me up. Well. Because I couldn't imagine anything worse than my parents dying. You it know, was my ever-present fear. You know that you and I have shared that, like... Yes. The origin of our terror. And you got this experience. Yeah. And I, I did have this to thank. Mm-hmm. Or at least to make it ten times worse. So Abigail struggles, but she manages to drag an unconscious Michelle out to relative safety. And you better believe, as a kid, I was holding my breath too. The entire time, yeah. hoping that I could help in some way. <laughs> Everybody hold your breath. It's like going over, like going in a tunnel. Mm-hmm. When you hold your breath, the old superstition. so much worse. Because in a tunnel, you do it to make a wish. And in this case, <sighs> Abigail did it to save her life. Oh, and I, I thought for sure they were going to be like, oh, they woke up from the gas. They're fine. They were just in a deep snooze. I know. Nope. <laughs> nope. That night, after checking their own homes and finding no one, the Furlings go to Cornelius' house for shelter. Did you find your mother? 
No, just her apron. Then we're the only ones left. I was in such a hurry this morning. This part also got me. I never kissed my mother goodbye. I thought when when her parents died, I thought they were all dead. I know. <laughs> I'm just over here and like knowing how close this hit to my own like growing up experience. And again, my separation anxiety and knowing Christian had never seen it and was walking mm. into the lion's den and I couldn't warn him. Like, even if I had warned you, I couldn't have warned you adequately. No. Listener, if this affected you to this day, you're not alone. Yeah, it's heavy. It's heavy stuff. As we saw in Edgar's morning scene, very clearly and intentionally, Edgar did tell his mom, no time, I'll kiss you when I get back. Mm-hmm. And if you want to talk about something that was downright haunting to me, it was this. Because we were already the kind of family that said, I love you when parting in every circumstance, you know, on the phone. Same. You know, Mm -hmm. going to walk around the block, like always, every single time. Yeah. But this movie and I mean, likely other life experiences that I had, I don't want to give it too much credit, but I feel like it gave both my sister and I a nearly OCD like compulsion. And I can say that because I actually have OCD. (laughs) Right. To tell our parents we love them at every opportunity. And it is still pretty much intact to this day. Mm-hmm. I think it's good to remember our mortality and express our love to people because it's true. You never know how much time you have left. You never know when it'll be your last day, like Memento Mori. Mm-hmm. Get it? Mm-hmm. But I do probably take it to the extreme, and I blame this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Man, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about mortality this week. <laughs> Uh, It's been a really heavy time doing a lot of mental health work. Yeah. We'll say that much. Kaylin knows about it. Yeah. Doing the work. And watching this movie. Didn't help, I'm sure. (laughs) And being confronted with just so much potential for death Mm -hmm. and last chances and getting older, which we'll talk about that too. Yeah. My God, it was just a lot. Because like usually the reason I like horror, we've talked about this over and over. Horror and dark things for children are really good because it helps it helps put uh, things like mortality into a sort of box to look at and observe yep. and analyze of course, of course. and come to terms yes. with. I think it's important to say that. It's very important. Yeah. This because- movie doesn't give you any of that. It just throws death at you and it's all encompassing mm-hmm. and it just reminds it's you final. that you it's, will die. It's over. It's and- final. That's all there is to it. Yeah. There's no safety net. There's nothing here that makes you feel comfortable. Mm-mm. It's just you had your chance. You lost it. There's no time left. It's done. That kind it's of over. thinking has very much, in part, like a religious trauma perspective, like has really shaped my life. Like the, you can't get that time back and living, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of people that I know are the same way. Mm-hmm. And that's very, a very unhealthy like headspace. Yes, it is. And yes, it is. <laughs> I feel like up until now, we've just been staring at each other and screaming about how insanely dark and like <laughs> over the top heavy this film is. Yeah. So I think it's very important to say that, yes, I think it can be very helpful. I don't think this movie did it in a way that was helpful for me. And I'd love to hear your perspective, listener, if you feel differently. But for me as a kid, this one only served to f*** me up. It did not serve to help me cope because there were several that that did, but Mm. not this movie. I had this thought earlier. I'll go ahead and say it here while we're talking about it. Her losing her parents... And the whole resolution of having her uncle Cornelius and that connection there, I could see seeing that represented on screen being a cathartic thing for a child. Who has been through a death of a parent. Has been through it, but is already coping. 
right. and is dealing sure. with it and functioning, and they're relatively well adjusted. I would still from say that. this would not be the film I would show to a child who experienced no. the death of a parent. No, but any other scenario, it only serves to f- you up. Which is how it consumed my life. The what if. Even as an adult, I was I couldn't believe Go it. off on a field trip, come back to have lost your entire family. And couldn't believe it. Like you said before, as a child, I thought they were all gone. Yeah. I saw her parents dead, but I thought as a kid, they were all orphaned mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. And that's how I remembered the film, too, if I'm being honest. Like in my head as I grew up, it felt that it way. It still felt that way. Yeah. So <laughs> I do enjoy the film. I think there it did do a lot of things right. I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's well made. I like it. I think it's a good movie. It, I do. It's too heavy for some circumstances and it's too heavy for some children and it's certainly too heavy for certain age groups. Right. <laughs> Including me at 3 years old. Right. So, just going to throw all of that out there at you listener. <laughs> Please do um let us know if you watched this one and uh how if you feel the same because this one, like I said, was m- somehow more obscure, mm-hmm. but I still feel like a lot of people have memories of it. So share it with one of your friends today. <laughs> oh, buddy. Do better than I did for Christian. At least warn them what they're getting into. Yeah. Yeah. What happened to our home, Cornelius? I had hoped you'd be a little older before we had this lesson. In a very sad, lonely flashback that I remembered vividly. We see that when he and Michelle's mother were children, humans came to the forest to trap animals. Mm-hmm. Um, for what reason, it's still unclear. But Cornelius and his sister managed to escape, but their parents, in quotes, did not. And since then, he believes that humans are inherently evil. Mm-hmm. I would probably think the same thing if they took my parents. They're not <laughs> not evil. This was the part I was trying to research. You say they like were not part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to like figure out what that was. Why would humans go in and try to gas critters? Well, try to like remove them. Exterminate. It was weird. I don't know. I don't get why they would go around and try to kill creatures at night in the in the dead of winter. I don't quite understand it either. It didn't make any sense to me. In general, it's all rough because at this point in the film, like I said, we're grappling with the fact that all of their parents have presumably either died or are otherwise gone for good. It doesn't feel like they're coming back in any case. And Cornelius tells them to get some sleep. And if you dream, dream of better times for Michelle and Dapport. Which, yeah, I just lost my parents and my siblings and my home, but okay, I'll go grab some shut-eye, no problem. And it doesn't seem to be a problem for the kids, which was just shocking to me. Yeah. Cornelius goes to Michelle's sick bed to comfort her as she lies there in a coma. <laughs> and although I said I love musicals, rewatching this last week, I did, in fact, forget about the songs. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it feels almost like they inserted this one just for Michael Crawford's sake. Right. Some of the lyrics include, <laughs> Don't sleep away the morning light. It's evening in my life. All I have is the night. But it's still early morning for you. Uh, it, Jesus. <laughs> all I have is the night. Unnecessary. Like, and not only that, but he is focusing on himself when he should be focusing on Michelle. Yeah, it becomes kind of I a I know pity he's party. saying you have the early morning and yada yada, but like, <sighs> it still feels a lot more like you're going to regret not living when you're older. But at this point, she's in a coma. Wake up, you lazy millennial. Right? Like, it feels like it's there's something she could do about it. And Sleeping I, I, your life away. 
I get what they're trying to say, but it, it's weird. I don't weird. get why it's so existential, though. Yeah, because death, I guess. I guess so, but like, why does this whole movie's theme have to be mortality? Good question. Like I said, I've been thinking about it way too much this week. Because the humans were f***ing up the environment, and uh, these filmmakers said, you know what, let's make them think about death at least. I guess, I guess that's the thing, too. Like, there's always two sides to these things. There's the point they're trying to make, and then there's the point that everybody walks away with. Mm-hmm. The point that Kaylin like, walked away with is, don't go on field trips without your mother. <laughs> your parents are going to die. If you go on you a field trip. you kiss them goodbye, and you go on a field trip. Yes. Like, anything can happen at any moment. Yep. Nothing you can do about it. That is what I walked away with. But the the actual message is, there are hey, humans. animals in the forests that you're destroying. Choose to take care of the animals. Don't kill things. It's very well-meaning, but... uh. <laughs> bit heavy-handed for the kids that ended up seeing it. Why are we even driving around chlorine gas on windy highways through forests? Yeah, why are we doing that? Good question. So to connect the dots for our parental panic segment, uh, I'll go ahead and reveal to you, listener, that most of their parents do eventually return to Dapplewood. Hmm. Michelle says, All the mommies and daddies are coming back. Not all, my dear. Yeah. And sadly, they're... There are probably many other families in Dapplewood who were torn apart in a similar fashion through this because this was a whole little community. And we just don't see them. Uh, Yeah, and we just don't see. Her parents likely weren't the only ones to go. Dude. And I'm glad for the reunions that we do see, and I'm glad that Edgar gets to redeem himself and get his kiss. But be glad, listener, that I didn't make you wait it out the way the filmmakers made us wait it out because, my God, we feel every abandonment feeling in the book before we close out this story. You know what I just realized? What did you just realize? All the parents that you meet before the gas comes, you see again. You don't see her parents until after the gas kills them. Mm -hmm. So it's less of a heart, you know, rending I'm sure they did that on purpose. Because, yeah, you you never see her parents You never meet them as living things. Correct. But, I mean, still to show them is too dark, but, like, I could see them making a choice. Right. It's almost like they didn't die if you never saw them alive. I'm literally, now I'm just processing what it would have been like for me to see it yeah. the other way. Her, them kissing her goodbye and... It's pretty terrible. Ooh. But it's still pretty terrible, so it's like... It's still terrible, but it's almost like that's the human approach. Like, you don't meet these animals. You don't see them. You're making choices that kill them. Right. But you aren't, or what you aren't aware of that they have whole right. existences. Lives, families. Mm-hmm. That's what I always think of. I saved, <laughs> I saved a tiny, tiny little gecko from my laundry room the other day. <laughs> you have to. Like, Your the, cats will eat them. I know, but it was like dangerously close. Like I walked into the laundry room and I dropped clothes off in the the washing machine and I looked down. It was like next to my foot, and I was like, little dude. I almost squished you. Yeah. Um, And then it was so close to the threshold between the laundry room and the hallway. My cats were going to come and attack. Mm -hmm. Not attack, but just more like slurp. And so (laughs) I reached down, I picked it up in my hand and it seemed grateful to me that I had picked it up. It was like appreciated. I've been trapped. I've been tormented. Yeah. It was like, I've heard the cats out there. I've known my death was imminent. (laughs) And so I just carried it outside and I put it down on the grass and it hopped out of my hand. And it was just like, thanks. Well, thank God. Now you can say 15% or more in car insurance. pushing the Geico. (laughs) Yep. That's how it seemed, honestly. Not a paid ad. Seemed very um, cognizant of what was happening to it. Smart guy. So... We're moving on to our third and final segment of Once Upon a Forest. Mm. Not too far from home, religion and racism. You know, far from home because the adventure and the (laughs) the whole movie is about how these guys travel 
and go great distances for their friend Michelle. That's right. Most of the rest of the film, in fact, consists of this adventure to find the eyebright and the lungwort that Cornelius believes will save her life. Yeah, that's the whole point, right? Right. And I'll give it props, again, for being rather realistic in terms of both the ailments caused by chlorine gas and the herbs that might assist Mm -hmm. these ailments. Mm -hmm. But in their trek across the country, which... Why do all films go like this, where they have this trek across the country? It's always an adventure. Always. The Furlings continue to learn about things like teamwork, empathy, and also the food chain as they encounter some pretty dark stuff on their adventure. Yeah, that owl's no joke. Mm -hmm. You said it. Their very first obstacle comes in the form of a clearing and one lonely tree trunk, which stood out in my memory so vividly for some reason. Yeah. They argue about whether or not to stop for the night, but the fearless tomboy trope Abigail insists that they press onward. You know what's weird? What's weird? That tree in the clearing with like the wind blowing and the leaves blowing and Mm -hmm. it felt so cold and empty and hollow. Yeah. I don't know why and I can't explain it, but something about that visual gave me almost a weird flashback to my personal religious trauma yeah of the despair i felt about losing salvation yeah like falling from grace the emptiness that was it i don't know why something about it took me back to being a teenager whoa and like feeling what it felt like to feel like i wasn't worthy damn of like being saved the i mean They were concocting in their laboratory of animation things to make you feel empty for sure and Mm -hmm. to feel fear. Not even just fear, but the the unknown of it all because this is a place they've never seen before. They're Mm -hmm. staring down something that is inherently dangerous to them, which is a clearing where there's no cover, which is what I think Edgar says. But it's not safe out there. There's no cover. And that might be why it uh, stuck out to you because there was no longer any cover. You were just out there. That Something about that visual was tied to a memory, a feeling I used to know very intimately mm. and loathe. So the kids are losing the light and they could soon lose much more than that mm-hmm. because when they cross the clearing to the trunk, they're nearly snatched up by a scary barn owl. Yeah, I mean, no less scary, but this, the blind <laughs> eye, the bluish, hazy. And it's really uh. funny too because clearly not all animals in this universe are anthropomorphized. Yeah, it's true. Um, I noticed and that too. TV Tropes calls this furry confusion. <laughs> When, like, some animals are interacting with us and some are just animals, you know, it happens again with the rats in the sewer. Sounds like they're talking about Burning Man. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. They, yeah, they love to conveniently pick and choose. But it it does paint some of these as kind of lesser than. Kind of, yeah, in a weird way. Which is weird. Because you meet the owl and immediately we meet other fowl Mm -hmm. that are not Nothing like the owl. Correct. Not trying to eat these, you know, rodents. Mm -hmm. These little critters. I think I'm finding the source of my uh, dislike or, like... Not even dislike, but distrust of birds. <laughs> <laughs> comes from this movie. It comes from movies like this, I would say. Probably. It feels like a visual depiction of Telltale Heart mm. when he describes his vulture eye, his bluish, mm. hazy vulture eye. Yeah, shining. Because like the owl has that blind, bluish eye. Mm-hmm. Of course, not a vulture, but still a bird of prey. Yeah. Abigail uses the magnifying glass. Uh, that they packed when they were leaving Cornelius' yeah. house. Okay, yes, yes. To save herself from this owl. As they're miraculously safe, Abigail admits her mistake and apologizes to the boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of this poignant moment, and they're learning to trust one another and communicate with one another, although the boys still aren't sure what to do with her emotions. <laughs> yeah, because she's the uh, yeah the token she's girl. She's the girl. She's the tomboy, and 
She's crying. Yeah, I mean, I have thoughts on that too. Oh, like, no. she's not herself anymore. <laughs> we don't know how to relate to her now. She's blamed for everything. Oh yeah. And she, the only solution is for her to doubt herself and tell the boys that they're in charge. Mm -hmm. Thank them for saving her. You guys are in charge now. I know you can do it. And that's not even what it's about. It's just, no. hey, I made a mistake. Right. Um, but clearly, although they're learning how to trust each other, learning that they, you know, obviously have to be cautious, mm -hmm. proceed with caution kind of thing. Right. The trust is kind of shaky because they did what Abigail wanted to do and then they landed in this situation. Mm -hmm. But it's cool because they're also learning each other's strengths. Right. It's like they all have to kind of accept each other mm -hmm. for what they do. Yeah. For who they are. They can't all be the leader. Right. And the one nerdy one, the mole, who isn't anything like a leader, needs to step up and do some stuff mm -hmm. and, you know, build his own self-confidence. It's true. It's nice. The next scene was so eerily familiar uh, in the back corners of my mind with the fireflies and the chorus singing and the gospel feel as they're, you know, walking through the, it's not a swamp really, but this low land sort of area. Yeah, they talked about how like the water had been like drained or something. They, yeah. Mm -hmm. The water's it, it's gone. It's like a swamp almost, but it's drained. I think it was like a marshy, marshland, yeah. Marshland is better than swamp, I agree. And they're, yeah, I think that they're working on developing it. Mm -hmm. Humans are. And yes. so they're losing their land. Yet again, it's just another case where that's happening. Right. Right. And there's also like a racial undertone in here too that we absolutely should recognize because I feel like this culture gets spoofed so often mm. i feel like sometimes kindly or like respectfully and other times not so much i do feel like this time it was respectful for the most part mm -hmm. but it also still confuses the hell out of me about where we are right i don't think that there were baptist choirs like this in europe i don't think so that's where the herbs are from well they all have american accents so it's like but, yeah and, and then they all have american accents so so where are we i don't know where we are but the Furlings join the procession, um, which turns out to be a funeral procession. Uh, as Preacher Bird Phineas gets up in front of the flock, uh, there's a dew-covered, sparkling spider web shining like stained glass behind him. It was nice. And it takes them a moment to catch on to what's happening. What's he squawking about? Someone's died. Oh. It's really interesting, speaking of the, the weird culture shift here, is the song starts off like a spiritual. Yeah, it absolutely And does. then we learn that it's a funeral. It becomes almost a song of mourning. Mm -hmm. And then it builds and builds and builds into a gospel song of like celebration. Right. Basically. Yeah, praise, the whole thing worship. is kind of one cohesive number, basically. Yeah. Because, yeah, like you said, first we're getting some of the congregational mourning mm -hmm. um, before it's revealed that they're actually in pre-mourning <laughs> uh, because the one for whom uh. they have gathered is still kicking. He's <laughs> still alive. <laughs> Flapping. <laughs> this is so Southern Gothic. It is, yeah. But it's out of place. All of it's out of place. It's a wonderful scene. But it's out of place. It's just so strange. And, but me. I think it, it goes along with the themes of death, right? Like, what are you going to do? Does. Well, we're going to go to a funeral. Not to derail us too much from the actual film, but it was at this point in my research that I discovered that there is such a thing as a living funeral. Okay. Have you heard of this? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I know that the origins of wakes was mm -hmm. to literally wait. Wait and see Make sure they, they wouldn't would wake, wake up. up. Right. Sure. This is different. Living... Funerals. This is very different. So a living funeral, Wikipedia says, um, also called a pre-funeral, is a funeral held for a living person. All right. Duh. Um, <laughs> it may be important to the person's psychological state or also that of the dying person's family to attend the living funeral. 
It's also sometimes used as a time to read the will and explain the reasons behind some of the decisions contained within it. I actually like this. I feel like if I leave a will, if I'm able to leave a will as a millennial, I'm just yeah. going to let people figure it out. I don't need to want, I don't want to have to explain my decisions. That's not fair. <laughs> well, no, I don't want to explain why I chose certain things, but just ask Taylor Swift. I like this because, you know, funerals are for the living, not for the dead. They are. But I like the idea of that for myself. Okay. So I'm a morbid SOB. I, I agree with you, but I feel like there's some caveats. So living funerals apparently became fairly popular in Japan in the 1990s. Hmm. This was mostly because elders felt that they were burdening their children with their old age. They wanted to lessen that burden by going ahead and having the funeral mm -hmm. prior to their death. Okay. I agree that I would like to be able to attend my own funeral, but I would like to attend my funeral more in a Tom Sawyer way than in like a dying old lady way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to attend and see yeah, what people would say if I wasn't at the funeral. I get what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want them to know I'm there. So that's the first place I'm going to haunt, obviously. As I'm long sure as it's not like most people would want to haunt. Scrooge and you go to your funeral and there's like <laughs> one person there. I don't want that. No, I don't but... want that either. <laughs> But definitely a Tom Sawyer kind of scenario. I think I would much rather attend my own funeral than like have to go through like a wedding. <laughs> it just sounds so like so much pressure. Yeah. At, the, at a funeral, the pressure is off. Yeah, there's no, no expectations. Pressure. I think that's what they don't want what anything I like else about from it. you. It's like you're just an observer here. Yeah. But you also get to hear what people really thought. And I say that. I don't want to know but that. But then again, <laughs> we have a tendency to romanticize the dead. So yeah, I don't. I don't. You know, I don't want to know what people thought of me. Honest funerals are an interesting concept as well. Like, how often does that actually happen? I was going to say, I I don't think even if you went to your own funeral, you'd hear what people really think. Yeah, maybe not. I think that it would, they would all talk about the good thing, the most idealized version of hey, your relationship. I'll take that too. <laughs> I don't know. Like no. that Christian man, he really knew how to keep to himself and not let anybody <laughs> in. And he just, he worked so hard. He was a hard worker. Man, he got a lot of stuff done and all at the same time. He got nothing done. Man, it's so interesting too, because it's like one of the only times when you formally get to talk about somebody and like your connection with them and how important it was or whatever. It makes me think of when we had our premiere for our movie. Mm -hmm. I directed, we've talked about it before, but I directed a film that Christian starred in and produced and edited and, and also was a writer. <laughs> a million other things <laughs> and wrote, we wrote together, co-wrote. <laughs> I, I don't even think about that part anymore. So long ago. But anyway, we had a premiere and the opportunity for to be able to talk about like how important he was to this film and like what he did for it and all of that stuff in front of all those people. It felt so strangely like I was eulogizing him. Yeah. I was like, stop was talking about it. me. <laughs> <laughs> He's standing Wait. next to me, super uncomfortable. And I'm like, but Let's I have to say it because when would I have another opportunity? Let's wrap Just, it up. We never get those chances in life. And I want to make sure people know how I feel about him because I'm taking a lesson from Edgar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe. Yep. I'm taking <laughs> I want people to know how I feel. Because like I've told you plenty of times, I need you in my life to make me look better. People will like me if you like me. And I i mean, that's true of a lot of people, just the connections that we have and what we do and don't say. Until it's, and all of our listeners. Yeah. And all you guys. They just sort of humor me <laughs> to get to you. That's not true. That's not true at all. I think it's the opposite. I'm the pasta. You're the sauce. See, I like pasta better than sauce, so. There you go. And that checks out in that analogy. There you go. It's like if, if you're playing a role-playing game and you want to be Michael Scott, you're <laughs> Dwight. Yeah. If you want to be Jim, you're Michael. Yeah. Very, very true. Wow. If you want to be Dwight, you're Andy. 
That's so and true. And it keeps going and going and going. Like it Did down the line. Did you just come up with that? All of- I've thought about this for years. That was so impressive. I really liked that. <laughs> I will think yeah. about this further at a later time. We can talk about it. But right this. now, <laughs> it doesn't seem that baby bird Bosworth has <laughs> much of a will and testament at all. So I don't know why they're pre-morning him. How long have we been talking? <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Bosworth. We- Bosworth. We do see that he's trapped in a puddle of oil while parishioners, including his mother, are lamenting and saying their goodbyes. Edgar is convinced that they can save him. He's like, what are you guys doing? There is a ray of hope. Brothers and sisters, we can save Bosworth. So the kids spring into action with absolutely no assistance from any of the able-bodied adult characters around them. Right. And work together to free Bosworth from his oily fate. This is what makes it so Southern Gothic to give somebody up to their fate and not even lift a single finger to help them. They didn't try at all. Nothing. Not one bit. But these kids coming in with a new outlook and a, a hope that isn't present in this congregation, apparently. They just dance their way off like, we don't need these kids in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be fine from here on out. It's like, well, what do you mean? You clearly needed their help just now. Clearly. Is that because birds are so flighty? Mm. Is that it? Like you're saying, the congregation rejoices in song, and it's all giving me Princess and the Frog vibes. As Phineas yeah. explains, in order yeah. to find the herbs that Michelle needs, they must walk among the yellow dragons that, that breathe, breathe fire, fire and brimstone. And brimstone. The only path lies that way, across a cursed ground over which my flock will not even fly. What a sermon he's preaching. I do like it. I like it. It's out of place, but I like it. Yeah, I don't hate it. It's fun. And somehow, even despite hearing all of these warnings, Abigail's still like, bring it on. Challenge accepted. Let's do this. She's a badass. She really is. Abigail is a badass. Absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. They're able to make it past the yellow dragons, which are construction vehicles. Despite escaping into a sewer and nearly drowning. Also, why are there sewers in this forest? Why is there a sewer drain? They're installing them to develop the land. The sewer's already there. It's already, there are already drains and everything. And a, and a working water flow system. Yeah, I don't know. That drains directly out into a pond. We made it! So here in Oakdale, they run into some vaguely racist... Species-ish-ist <laughs> are they racist? Well, I guess um, they are well, against the mainly mainly the lead bully wags, but they do all say it because they're pretty much down on anybody that's not a squirrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why would a mole, a mouse, and a hedgehog want to help a, a foul-smelling, worm-eating, good-for-nothing badger? But luckily, one of the field mice that is friends with them develops a bit of a crush on Abigail because what's a movie without at least the whispered notion of romance? I like that it was just sort of like a vignette, a moment. It didn't become a weird thing. Yeah, not too bad. It wasn't, like, uncomfortable. So the kids once again exceed everyone's expectations and manage to retrieve the eyebright before being told that the lungwort is high on the side of a cliff. No one in Oakdale's ever been able to reach it. Uh, but they have a secret weapon. You guessed it, listener. The plans for the flapper wing thing <laughs> The dangling flap snacker. And after a quick montage, they're soon in flight. And because there wasn't already enough drama in this movie, we watch in horror as Abigail nearly falls to her death and the shy, cautious Edgar is forced to step up and save the day. This begins what TV Tropes calls the chickification of Abigail, or really whenever Willie developed his crush on her. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, also after she gets into real danger, she becomes a little more cautious, which is understandable. But from there, her biggest contribution is this getting the locals to like her by flirting. Yeah. 
And then she right. fails to get the longwort and puts herself in mortal peril again so that Edgar can complete his own character arc. Wow. They have to tear the girl down to build the dude up. She kind of just becomes like a device right. herself mm-hmm. for other characters. And it kind of turns the tomboy thing on its head as soon as the puberty is implied, as soon as the romance is implied, then... She's no longer a tomboy. Now she's just a a damsel in distress, basically. Interesting. Don't love it. Yeah. It's not the first time and it won't be the last. Absolutely But you can be all those things at one time if you want to. Yeah, be a scout finch. Yeah, exactly. So once they have the eyebright and the lungwort safely in hand, Russell directs the craft away from the meadow and they're headed off into the sunset. Mm. It would be a majestic trip home until they're caught in an electrical storm and they run into a power line. (laughs) When they crashed into the power line, (laughs) I was just, I couldn't believe. Yeah, I know. It's like the storm isn't enough. They have to also run into a power line. Yeah, I know. Um, They they should have all been barbecued. They should have. I know. I thought the movie was about to end. Just smack, sparkle, (laughs) and then done. They just just took a fall, hit the ground. Movie's over. I know. Was it Murphy's Law? About everything that could go wrong. Could go wrong. Will will go wrong. Correct. And it did. In this movie. Except. For when they crash land in the perfect place. <laughs> well, you know, Murphy didn't account for that. So once they've crash landed, they race back to Dapplewood to get to Cornelius and Michelle, only to then be accosted by some mask-breathing humans and to have to evacuate again. Hmm. I remember the sounds so well and how much they reminded me of E.T. Yes, it's so Because it's the same... <sighs> yeah, the breathing, the like... Sounds of mm-hmm. them breathing through their masks. Same, same yes. as ET, and I don't like it. It no. makes me afraid, or it did when I was a kid, and that carries over. They try to run, but in their fear, Edgar is snagged, disrobed, and caught in a trap. This was so as the humans surround him. Sad. It's really sad. It's so sad because you see what Edgar really is to the human, not what he really is, but what he is to the humans well, from yeah. a human perspective. He's just a little tiny mole. They can't see because right. he can't see without his glasses. He can't see without his glasses. A blind, yeah, blind mole, like the trope, right? Yeah. Because they live underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he goes from an anthropomorphized character to a woodland creature. Right. Like you see him become mm-hmm. just an animal. Right. It's disturbing. He he goes to the furry confusion side that we've seen um, just because we're then seeing him through the eyes of the human, which is su- it's super weird. It's honestly a little bit creepy. It's unsettling. And as a kid, I just couldn't understand why he had to be naked. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. They couldn't have him interact with the humans while he was wearing clothes. So, Mm-mm. you know, I whatever, I get it. I feel like they could also do like a SpongeBob thing where you see the, the <laughs> human perspective, but that doesn't mean that they're not wearing clothes, the you know? The stark reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. But, I was thinking moments before from the human perspective of seeing like a bunch of little creatures in clothes, like wearing glasses. <laughs> I was like, what are they going to do when they see this? But yeah, they, they just avoided that issue altogether. Yeah. Without any of it. But thankfully, Cornelius wasn't right about everything because these humans seem to be cleaning up the gas bill. Thank God. And while they're doing this, they kindly free Edgar from the trap before they discard it themselves. This is a sweet moment. Not all humans. Am I right? <laughs> Not all humans are bad. Not all humans. Like us and you guys. Yeah, exactly. There are some some of us that want to help rather some than Some of hurt. us care. But at this point, I feel like it would have been safe for them to return to Cornelius's house. But for some reason, they don't. And instead, they go back to the willow tree to give Michelle her medicine. Yeah. I guess it does have more of like a Mother Nature vibe in the moonlight. Yeah, I don't know. They begin to like grind up the herbs for... 
Cornelius to use on Michelle. And it's I more also, cinematic. I think it is more cinematic. And I also think of this movie every damn time I see a mortar and pestle. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. That's funny. That's funny. I picture this scene from this movie every single time. I don't know what I think of. Probably just a mortar and pestle. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't know. Cornelius says that they should know whether the herbs have helped in the morning, leaving Michelle's fate agonizingly hanging in the balance for mm. baby Kaylin. And they all curl up to sleep on the ground, which, why can't you guys go home now? Why, like, why can't you just go home and take Michelle to bed? Like, why? I don't know. Mm. But yeah, they leave it in this limbo place where mm -hmm. we don't know if she's going to be okay until the morning. It goes from more cinematic to more harrowing this way. Right, because you're still not sure. And then, of course, the film has to end with a Disney death of sorts because the next morning, the kids still think they were too late to save Michelle. I know, geez. And they have to hear Cornelius cry. So the whole thing is fairly devastating. Oh my dear Michelle. Um, and even though Michelle does wake up, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't really able or equipped to like recover from that mentally and emotionally as a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, nor was I able to recover from thinking that most of the parents were goners um, and Michelle's actually having died. Right. So even though the parents came back and Michelle was alive, that's not what I remembered or how I how I left it. I still left the film feeling really sad and the redemptive, like hopeful moment didn't land for me mm -hmm. as a kid because all of it was so traumatizing to get to that point. You're alive, kid. Congratulations. Um, you now have to live your whole life without your parents. So yeah. good for you. Glad you made it. I'll never be able to replace your parents. Not to say I you can can't try. live a fulfilling life without your parents or loved ones, but still, it's a pretty, it's just like weird consolation moment. Weirdly unnecessary, know. honestly. Yeah. yeah. Before we conclude, though, uh, I'll share a little bit about the film's reception at the time in 1993. All right. Once Upon a Forest only made back about half of its roughly $13 million budget. Jeez. And some think this was due to its premiere being only one week after Jurassic Park. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we know sometimes those blockbusters can wipe out the little guys. Mm -hmm. The film's advertising at the time promised a new masterpiece from the creator of an American tale. And this was technically true with the creator being David Kirshner, yeah. who executive produced the film and actually did originate the characters and story for American Tale. But they didn't call him by name, and many critics of the time found this misleading. I don't think they're entirely incorrect in thinking that. Yeah, I don't blame because them. Because people were then hoping instead for the likes of Don Bluth or Steven Spielberg. Right, yeah. It wasn't quite that. I guess David Kirshner had a few reasons for the intensity with which we've learned that he clung to his credits. Because somehow, despite his involvement in so many classics, he never quite achieved the same household name status on his own. Yeah, wow. Sorry, David. Right. You made some amazing things, though. Certainly given us a lot of content. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny that Hal Henson of the Washington Post wrote... The principal virtue of the new animated feature, Once Upon a Forest, is that it is 100% dinosaur-free, and that includes Barney. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what you got All against right. the dinosaurs, Hal? <laughs> there was just so much dinosaur content. Yeah, there was a lot of dinosaur content at he the time. He was like, how refreshing, how original, no dinosaurs, yeah. wow. And most critics agreed with him for the most part, though they were generally not fans of what they called weightless animation. Though as a child, I rather liked it. 
a lot of people said there wasn't enough depth to it. And I personally don't see where they're coming from. I don't because agree at all. I thought it was fine. Yeah, oh, it was good. But despite these setbacks to true critical acclaim, it was nominated for a 1993 Annie Award for Best Animated Feature mm-hmm. alongside Aladdin and Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland. Wow. Yeah. Guess which of those won out at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I can only guess. Well-deserved victory, though. I would say so. Mm-hmm. In conclusion... This film combined memorable animation with themes of loss that I was admittedly probably not ready to grapple with, but what else is new in 80s and 90s animation? No, who was? They were just joining the crowd they couldn't beat, I guess. I feel like despite absolutely wrecking me as a kid and emphasizing, if not outright causing, um, (laughs) my fairly severe separation anxiety with my parents for my entire childhood, the whole thing has a more innocent feel to it than something like Brave Little Toaster. And while Fern Gully focused more on the flora, which I think the fairies were included in to an extent, mm-hmm. this felt more cautionary in terms of taking care of the fauna. Right. But they both do incorporate both elements of the environment as a whole because we all need all of these ecosystems and food chains, or so says Mufasa. That's right. At the end of the film, the critters face a much different Dapplewood than the lush, beautiful home that greeted us at the start of the film. But the general message and literal from Cornelius seems to be, if we all work hard to save Dapplewood, it will be even better than before. Mm-hmm. I really wish we could say that about the 100 degree oceans and such, don't you? <laughs> I, really, I say, let's work together, listener. I let's really save wish. Dapplewood. I think let's that save was Dapplewood. kind of the idea that we just went, oh, what a quaint thought. What a heartwarming I know. concept. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a kid's movie. Let's get on to some bigger, better things. Let's yeah. make some money. Although, as we talked about with Fern Gully, watching those films as kids did inspire a lot of people to go into these spaces and advocate for our environment, which I think is really cool. And I'm sure this film, much like Fern Gully, did do a lot of the same. This film does offer that ray of hope that while humans are capable of making messes, we're also sometimes, if we want to, capable of cleaning them up. And at the very, very least, I think this film did make a whole generation, or those lucky enough to have been subjected to it, think twice before littering on the highway come their grown-up years. And thank God for that, right? <laughs> Dude, yeah, man. I, I know for a fact I would never, ever dream of littering on the highway, much less a glass bottle. Oh, I know. I actually see people throw stuff from their cars all the time. It mm. pisses me off. Yeah. That's my road rage. I want to like ram These the These people back didn't see Once Upon a Forest. Oh my God. And listener, if you've been this person before, it doesn't mean you can't change. It doesn't mean you can't change. See, look at the climate. It's it's changing. <laughs> if the climate can change, so can you. Oh, it's the opposite of the point we want to make. But <laughs> you can change. That's true. The climate just being the change it wants to see in the world. Also- and so can you. I don't know if it was Christian or who allowed me to do Brave Little Toaster and Once Upon a Forest back to back, but I really hope y'all are okay out there. <laughs> <laughs> Is it back to back? It did a courage episode. Yeah. Well, well, I did my movie nights for my movie nights that hey, I've done. Don't pretend like I didn't do half of Brave Little Toaster. You did, already. you did, but for for movie nights in general, it's been a it's been a dark summer. It's yeah, it has been a dark summer. It's only going to get darker. We have one more. Pretty dark movie night That's right. to do before our Halloween season. We're already getting prepped. Guys, we celebrate Halloween. Honestly, on August 1st, I was like, this is now Halloween. At the end of July, I was going and buying Halloween decor. Oh my like, goodness, man. We're so ready. July 5th, we got our uh, Spirit Halloween banner up. I think it just opened as well. It's time. It's, it's time. Happening. It's coming. Whether you're ready or not, ready or not, here it comes. Because so. the next episode's really going to bridge summer to spooky season, like effectively. 
Yeah. It will be a very, very convenient bridge. Yep, we're going to cross the bridge from the late sunset of an August summertime. That's right, we are. To the September spookies. Oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. So excited. It'll be such a good time. If you'd like to find us on our social media, you can do so on Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast, on TikTok, That's Pretty Dark. Yeah. We just had a reel kind of go viral. So if you've been seeing us around Instagram a little bit more lately. Or if you came here from that. Or if that. you came here from that, welcome. Welcome. We are so excited that you've come to the dark side. Texas <laughs> yeah. is a great introduction to what we do Take here. Take a walk and on the wild side. We hope you enjoy it and want to stick around with us for the rest of it. That's right. If you want to support us and the work that we do, put in all the research in and Christian's editing time. Um, we do have a Patreon with some bonus content for you. You can find that where? Patreon.com slash TPD podcast. Yeah, well done. I was ready. And we announced it in our last episode, but we do have merch available now. I won't be annoying about it, but it exists. So if you ever <laughs> wanted to get yourself a That's Pretty Dark shirt or mug mm-hmm. or bag, uh, you can do that now. Go to That's Pretty Dark dot com. That's Pretty Dark dot com. To our merch tab. Yes, that's where you find our merch. Wow. Thanks for all this research. Yeah. Thank you. Good work. This was fun. This one has been looming large in my mind, so I'm honestly just kind of glad to have jumped the hurdle. Yeah, you've been talking about it for about two years, two and a half years. Many, to many me. years. I think we got some clarity, at least, on we did. where it came from, at least. Chlorine gas. It's helpful. We learned about chlorine gas. Who knew? Which is not something I expected to have to talk about, but here we are. Who knew? We're big fans of information. And we learned that if you find herbs that are named after body parts, typically, mm. it serves it to heal that body part that body part mm-hmm. we can trust the names but they couldn't exactly trust the looks of things the way they thought they could <laughs> but they've done all that work and now they've named it for us so mm-hmm. we benefit too bad we can't find like soul salve oh hey trauma mend that's or I mean, there are some blends know. that i think might help us out mm-hmm. let's look into that <laughs> take care of it <laughs> Well, enjoy uh, what is left of your summertime, listener. Yeah, guys. And we will see you very soon. Mm. As soon as possible. Sooner than you'd think. (laughs) Or probably just as soon as you'd imagine. Just as soon as you'd imagine. As soon as usual, probably. (laughs) No sooner. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) No sooner. Yeah, no. If you see us any sooner. Something's wrong. We're probably going to turn and walk the other direction and be like, stop stalking us. Yeah. How do you know where I live? Yeah, guys. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. See you later. Bye. Stop killing the animals. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark. Written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So, until next time, sweet dreams, everyone.